The following audio is from Summit Church. For more information on Summit Church, visit www.summitonline.tv. That's Ezra chapter 2, at least some of it. Um, the, when we got there, when I opened it up this week, it is my worst nightmare. My worst nightmare is reading in public. I don't mind speaking in public. I don't like to read in public because I'm not good at it. Okay, I'm literate. I can read, but I cannot read in public, at least not something that I've got to look over before. It just terrifies me. Um, so this is my worst nightmare. Ezra chapter 2 is my worst nightmare. Uh, pronouncing any biblical names, cities, names, it's just very difficult. It's your, your best guess. Phonics is out the window. You know, you just try. Um, <clears throat> but I, I'm just extra horrible at it, okay? When I, when I was in youth ministry, one of my first years in ministry, Leading a game for hundreds of students. Uh, I'm having to read slides off the screen, but I haven't seen them, okay? And so we're just flying along, and I'm like, all right, all right it's this section. Uh, who knows how many fingers an orange atus has? The word was orangutan. Okay. Now, I still don't know how to spell orangutan, but it looks like orange tusses, all right? So I'm just reading along. How many fingers does an orangutan? And the seventh graders looking at me going, you're a moron. Like, how do you not know that's orangutan? I've never seen the word. So I, I don't like to read names in public, but we are a church that goes verse by verse through the Bible. So Ezra chapter 2 is 70 verses of my worst nightmare, okay? And so here's the deal. We are not going to skip chapter 2 at all. We're going to look at each section but I'm not even going to try with the names, all right? We're just going to talk about the whole group, make some statements. We're not skipping anything. I'm just not going to try to butcher the names because those are some of the smartest people on our staff, all right? And I don't think they got any of them correct. So we're just, we're just going to go with that for Ezra chapter 2. Thank God still has something really great to speak to us. Let's pray, and then we will jump in. Father, thank you for who you are, what you do, and the way you do it. We know, Jesus, that you are alive and that you are moving and that one of the ways you speak to us most clearly is through your word. So come and do just that today as we listen. Allow us to absorb what it is that you have to speak to us and let us leave here and go and do just that for your glory. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So, if you want to follow along in your Bible, I would highly recommend it today. If you don't have a Bible, it will all be on the screen, but we are going to be jumping, okay? Jumping quite a bit. So, Here we go. Ezra chapter 2, verses 1 through 70. We'll look at the first two verses, the ones I already read on the screen. Here's what you need to know about verse 2. The names that I can't read there. Those are the seven heads of the family, the principal families. If you were here last week, these are the head fathers. They are the top of the family tree. All of the other people, most of the other people that are mentioned in Ezra chapter 2 will fall under one of these seven leaders, these seven figures. They are at the top. Their lines can be traced all the way back to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They are from the 12 tribes of Israel. I mean, these are the leaders of all of it. So that's the first two verses. Then we jump into the list, breaking it down even further, trying to figure out what. What is this a list of All of those who made the 900-mile journey from Babylon to Jerusalem. All who set out on the mission given to them by the king, but because the Lord our God had moved in his heart and said, I want to be worshipped publicly again. I want to be worshipped in my city, Jerusalem. And he uses the most powerful man in the world, the king of Persia, to do just that. And this is just simply a list It's simply a list to help history know who went, who went on this journey. The people that went did not all go in one large group. 
There are multiple groups that went over a period of months. The journey itself took four months, so you know you're going to spread out over the way for a four-month journey. But this is the whole. This is a list of the whole who went to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem, then the city of Jerusalem, and finally when we get to Nehemiah, the wall around Jerusalem. This is who went. There are the names of clans in Ezra 2, verses 3 through 20. Once again, I will not read them. But look at the very top of verse 2. This is a list of the men of the people of Israel. The men. That's going to be important later on. This is a list of the men. This is a numbering of the men who are from the 12 tribes of Israel who went back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. Now, this list, okay, it's brutal to read, right? But it's important. And especially this particular subsection. Because these are the men who can trace their lineage back to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. These are the men who are part of the community of God. They are children of God. They are the Israelites of the Israelites. What does that mean? It means you're in. It means you're a child of God. If you're listed here, you're in. You're going, but that, how does that apply today? Well, Revelation tells us of another book that we want to see our name in. Another chapter, if you will, where you want to see your name. And if you see your name there, then you're in. It's the Lamb's Book of Life. And if your name is written in that, you're good to go. Now, the way you get your name in there is through faith in Jesus Christ. But I, I just don't want to dismiss lists as going, this has no relevance to these men in, the, in this section. Their name being on this list meant the world. Now, the next section, geographical names, Ezra 2, 21 through 35. Okay, these are men who are one of two things, families who are one of two things. Either they were the poorer of those who journeyed back, and they had no land claim in the promised land. Okay, and since they had no land claim, then they do not get listed by name. That is possible, but I do not think that is likely the reason why they're listed by geography versus their name. I think the reason they're listed by geography versus their name is because they cannot trace their ancestry back to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They're part, they're in, but somewhere over the centuries, they've lost the documentation necessary. They've lost the, the papers literally necessary to get on this list. So they go, we got a bunch of people from this area, from Bethlehem. We got a bunch of people from this area. That, that's what's going on. And they're counted just the same, but not by their name, by the region in which they come from. Um, for this section, let's not forget that God has a heart, even for those who in our society are to be nameless. Okay, these are still the children of God. These are still the people of God and they're still listed right here. Even though they're not listed by their name, they matter to God and they're part of his mission and part of his purpose. You don't have to be a somebody to be somebody to God. I think I wanna see that through Ezra. The priests, Ezra chapter two, verses 36 through 39, really the priests are listed all the way down through verse 58, but there's some subcategories of the priests. What are the priests? Well, they make up about 10% of the returnees, the people that are going back to Jerusalem. They're gonna need the priests because they're going back to build the temple. And what do the priests do? They serve in the temple. They receive the sacrifices. They offer up the prayers. They make sure there's orderly worship. They're gonna need a lot of them if the main goal is to go back and reinstitute corporate worship. They're gonna need the priests. They're gonna need as many priests as they can get. And this is the number in which they find. Now, once again, there's some subcategories. You got the first ones there in verses 36 through 39. Then you have the Levites who are broken out in verses 40 through 42. Now, the Levites are special. They're the top of the top tier 
They're, they're the priests that are chosen by God, that family set apart from the 12 tribes of Israel to be the priests to serve in the temple, and you have them going here. I want you to look at verse 40. Okay, find it on the screen or circle it in your Bibles. Something very sad out beside verse 40. The number 74. Now, I'm not expecting you to have memorized the rest of the numbers. But a lot of the other clans, a lot of the other geographical regions, a lot of the other families, their numbers were hundreds, if not thousands. 74 Levites, the top tier people who serve in the temple. How many of them made the journey back? 74. A journey that was going to rebuild the temple. If anyone's going to be excited about this, it'd be them. But why? Why so few? Have they died off? What? Here's the reason, and it's sad. The Levites, according to Scripture, had no inheritance, meaning no land, set aside for them in Judah. For one reason. Their inheritance was the Lord. Their inheritance was the Lord. Joshua chapter 13, verse 33. Here's where that's explained. But to the tribe of Levi, to the Levites, Moses had given no inheritance in the promised land. You get no land. Every other tribe got their section of the land. Every other tribe has claim to the land, but not the Levites. No, they will have no inheritance. The Lord, the God of Israel, is their inheritance as he promised them. Why so few? Because they're going back to serve. They're not going back to regain ownership of anything. Their inheritance is the Lord. And before you slam them, put yourself in that situation. There's, all, there's tens of thousands of people that are rallying to go back. They're all going to go back to their hometowns. They're going to rebuild. They're going to start worshiping God again. They're so excited. And these guys go, we don't have anything back there except the Lord. And, and I know we're in church, right? So like it should be if, if you don't have any, if you lose everything but get Jesus, that's enough, right? That's, I mean, we say that here at Summit all the time. If you lose everything and have Jesus, in the end, you win. But I think this is a great picture of human nature. People want a little extra. They want Jesus plus something. They want land. They want name. They want title. They want inheritance. And Joshua says their inheritance is the Lord. They get Jesus. They get the Lord. That's what they get. But they don't have land. So, so few come back. It's really quite sad. Now, look at verse 41. Each of the Levites, the priests, had musicians that accompanied them, not really servants. Think of a pastor and a worship leader, okay? Literally, think of it that way. A pastor and a worship leader, that, that's the way that we work together, that's same thing. And then they also get gatekeepers. Now, David is the one who instituted both of these. The Levites to the Levites, the head priest, he gave musicians and he gave gatekeepers, simply people to guard the gates into the temple in Jerusalem. So you have a security force, a musician, and a priest, That's the team that goes back, and you have their numbers listed there. Now, there were temple servants. So servants to the priests, okay? Ezra 2, 43 through 54. These servants have names that are not Jewish. Not that you should know that just by reading the list, but these are not Jewish names. These are pagan names. Why? Because this is a group of people who were taken captive by David from foreign countries and as a sign of his dominance, of his God's dominance, they were circumcised. So they're foreigners who have been circumcised, oftentimes not by their own free will, and they have been commissioned then to serve the Levites in the temple. They are the gophers. Ezra chapter 8, verse 20, we're not going to read it, but it states that they were set apart to serve the Levites in the mundane temple tasks. 
They had to do what the pro-priests didn't want to do. That's what they were set apart for. The term temple servant literally means dedicated ones. They were dedicated to the task, they're dedicated to the job, but I want you to look, okay? I want you to look at the number down at the end of verse 58, okay? That number, 392. Four times more of these servants with no land claim, with no Jewish heritage, went back then, did the Levites. It's kind of sad to me. The 392, including the descendants of the servants of Solomon, so some of Solomon's servants were set aside to serve in the temple, including that number 392 go. You know what this tells me? That we don't all get the glamorous jobs in the kingdom of heaven. But every job matters, and everyone's counted as part of the team. And to me, that's cool. Like, you know, we don't all get to be at the top. We don't all get to have the name. We don't get all get to have the title. We don't all get to have the land. We, it's, but we all are part of the team. We all get counted and we all matter. Now, there's a group listed in Ezra chapter two, verses 59 and 60. Okay, they're simply titled the others. These were priests, okay? These were temple servants and priests who had no papers, they couldn't legitimize their ancestry. So they're listed there, and then look at verse 59. But they could not show that their families were descendants from Israel. So that, they have this small group that just don't have papers. They're going to have to figure out what to do with them. And they figure out what to do with them in verses 61 through 65. So what are they going to do? Okay, let's just start reading there at the beginning, the bottom of 61, because there's something kind of fun to mention here. Uh, you see Hobahiah, Hakazu. And Brazil, nut, you see them all right there. Brazil, and I know that's not Brazil, but like, that's just what I'm going to go with. Brazil, he has a parenthetical. He was a man who had married a daughter of Brazil, the Gileadite, and who was called by that name. So you have a man who took his wife's name in order to be a priest. I, I mean, that was a very humbling thing to do 3,000 years ago to take your wife's name. You wouldn't have done that, but the wife's side of the family got to serve the Lord in the temple. His side of the family didn't, and he wanted to serve the Lord in the temple. I, I think that's pretty amazing, okay? Now, the rest of these who were undocumented, verse 62, these searched for their family records, but they could not find them, or some were excluded from the priesthood as unclean. So some had tarnished themselves. They were set aside. The governor, okay, Sesh Bazaar, we met him last week. That's most likely who the governor is, ordered them not to eat of any of the most sacred foods until there was a priest ministering with the Urim and the Thummim. So they are in limbo until what happens? The temple's set up, priestly activity goes back on, and they can get out these two rocks, the Urim and the Thummim. A black and a white rock that were encrusted in the ephod of the high priest, the top, top priest. They, they were rocks that were used to discern the will of God. Okay, and I know this sounds crazy to us, but all throughout the Old Testament, when those who were struggling to understand the will of God, they would cast lots. God, do you want us to do this or this? Uh, we don't know, so we'll just draw. We'll draw one of these rocks. The white rock, the Urim says yes. The black rock, the Thummim says no. They did this. I mean, we can see it listed all throughout Scripture, specifically Numbers chapter 27, verses 21. 
He is to stand before Eleazar the priest, so the high priest, who will obtain decisions for him by inquiring of the Urim before the Lord. At his command, the high priest's command, okay, the entire community of the Israelites will go out at his command and they will come in at his command. So the high priest is dictating to the entire community of Israel what to do and how's he getting his orders? Pulling a rock and going, okay, God, we got it. Bring him in. Bring him in. Oh, send him back out. God says, go back out. It sounds crazy. But the idea of casting lots and sitting before God and choosing or allowing him to choose, it's in the New Testament. Judas Iscariot had to be replaced. How'd they pick between the two apostles that were both candidate, both fully qualified? They cast lots. They let the Lord decide. Now, I don't know that I recommend you go start doing this. Like, all right, God, you want me to quit my job or just keep my job? <laughs> all right, I'm quitting. Like, I don't reckon, no. like, you got to really pray over. You probably need to find one of the special rocks. But, like, just know the Lord is in our decisions and our decision making. And this is a humble way for a community of people to sit before the Lord. Verses 64 through 69. Okay, we're getting pretty done, pretty close to be done. We're going to total up this whole list, okay? Total it all up. Verse 64. The whole company numbered 42,360. That's the total number of all who went. Now, I did the math for you. If you add up all the numbers on the side, they do not equal 42,360. They equal 29,818. What's the discrepancy? Don't count the women in the first list. This is a list of the men, but the women get counted in the whole. Okay, so this is including the men and the women who numbered 42,360. The list is only of the men, 29,818. I think that's a very logical explanation. That number 42,360 is listed again in Nehemiah 7. So if you're paying attention, that means when we get to Nehemiah 7 here in several weeks, we get to do this all over again. Um, That'd be fun. And then there's an apocryphal work or apocryphal book. So it's a book about this, but that didn't make it into the canon, into the 66 books of our Bible. That book is Estrus, and it also has the exact same number. So three different writers confirm that is the whole number of people that went with the idea of rebuilding the temple. Now, they had some other things with them. Verse 65, besides their 7,337 male and female slaves, so that's added to the number, they also had 200 male and female singers, They had 736 horses, 245 mules, 435 camels, and 6,720 donkeys. Um, The only thing that's really relevant about that list is that horses were for the wealthy and donkeys were for the poor. Based on that list, what were they heavy in? The poor. The wealthy of Babylon and their horses tended to stay behind. The poor tended to go do the work of the Lord. I'm not saying that is a rule. I'm saying that is very clearly stated here with the obscene number of donkeys that made the journey. Now, verse 68, when they arrived at the house of the Lord in Jerusalem, some of the heads of the families gave free will offerings toward the rebuilding of the house of God on its site. Underline the word some. There were seven heads of the families. All seven of them should have ponied up. The rest of the 42,000 are looking at them for leadership, for guidance. They are the heads of the heads. Some of them gave, some of them didn't. We do not have an exact number. 
Okay, and then from that, the, the families contributed in as well. Here were the totals. According to their ability, they gave to the treasury for this work. They gave 61,000 derricks of gold, 5,000 minas of silver, and 100 priestly garments. I don't know if that's a large haul or not, but it seems to be a good Sunday offering, you know? Like, that's, that's pretty good. Verse 70 the priests, the Levites, the musicians, the gatekeepers, and the temple servants settled in their own towns, which would have been in and right around Jerusalem because they worked there. They didn't have land elsewhere. They didn't have geographical regions to go to. They, they would have settled right there, along with some other people who just stayed put. The rest of the Israelites settled in their towns. Okay, so the surrounding communities, Bethlehem, so, I mean, just where, where their families had land and title given to them from Moses as coming into the promised land. So some stay in Jerusalem to start building. They're going to work once it's built. The rest go kind of settle back in their camps. There's two things from these 70 verses that I want to point out very quickly. The first one, it's very simple. This was a huge number of people that were moved by God to go work on his behalf. 42,000 people made the journey according to the projection from the 2015 census. Those 42,000 people would have established the 11th largest city in Oklahoma, just behind Stillwater and just in front of Muskogee. These are not small towns, and this is not a small number of people. And the God of the universe moved in the hearts of 42,000 plus people to go and to do his work. That's big, and we can trust in a God who can use the king of Persia to move 42,000 people to do something for his glory. We, we can trust in that God. So that's the first thing I want us to see. The second thing I want us to see, because let's be honest, I mean, we're, we're, we're struggling to pull sermon material from Ezra chapter two, right? So, so I, because I want to be fair, I'm not trying to use this for any kind of leverage. But in verse 68, when only some of the heads of the families gave, that's heartbreaking. As I alluded to last week, the journey took it out of some people. They were all excited to go, and after four months on the road and arriving to a burnt-down city of Jerusalem, they have lost some of their passion for the Lord. And verse 68 tells me just how critical it's become. Their heart is no longer for the Lord. They have gone into self-preservation mode. How in the world am I getting that from one verse because some of the heads of the family took the gold and the silver that was given to them on the way out by their neighbors, by their friends, by foreigners living in Babylon. The gold that was freely given to them. It was not theirs. It was given to them for the purpose of glorifying God and rebuilding the temple. Some of them took it and went, you know what? I got, I got mouths to feed. I got a house to build. I know we came to build the temple of the Lord, but I've got debt myself. So they chose to keep it for themselves while others freely gave. It is by no means the best indicator of your heart, church. By no means the best indicator of your heart. But if you want to take an evaluation, a heart level evaluation of where you're at with the Lord, one of the things you can do is look at your bank account. One of the things you can do is look at your bank account and see where all the money that God gives you, because I believe every penny you have is from him, where all the money that God gives you goes. And if all of it stays with you, it's a good indicator of your heart. 
And you're going, man, it doesn't stay with me. It goes to my kids. Like, uh, get, get off. I, I'm not some selfish person. I, I have kids in college. I have, like, get back off. I'm not coming after you. I'm just saying there's better indicators. Number one indicator of your heart for the Lord, are you desiring to spend time with him? Do you desire that? Not, not do you have to, do you force to, are you, are you regretting that you don't? Do you desire to? The second and better indicator for your heart, do you desire to love others well? That comes from your passion for the Lord. Do you serve? Do you give? Do you, do you give to others? Do you forgive others? Those are much better indicators than your bank account of your heart. So I, I don't want you to just go, well, I, you know, last year, according to my, my giving statement, like I gave $5,000. Okay, that, that, can, that can be misleading. Okay, that can be misleading. But I will say this. To say that you are passionate about God, the things of God, and the work of God, and to not be willing to fund those things. And have I said once, give to the church? I've not once said tithe, I've not once said give to the church. I've said, or if you're passionate about funding the things of God with the money that God has given you, if you're not passionate about that, I would ask you to look at your heart. Because something's off. And the reason I know that is because we are just months away, chronologically here, from all of the work on the temple coming to a grinding halt. The people were not passionate about it. And the first indicator that I have comes from the day one when the offering was taken and some of the leaders, we don't know how many, said nope. I know I was sent here with this purpose and I was actually given a bunch of money to give to this, but not gonna happen. Not gonna happen. It's very telling. It's very telling. Simply an indicator. So today, as the band comes back up, I, I want to kind of come full circle on this. There is a God who moved the king of Persia and 42,000 people to respond to him, to build a temple for him so that his people might worship him. There's a God who is that powerful. That is a God you can trust in. You can trust in him for your day-to-day -day life. You can trust in him for your finances. You can trust a God that is powerful enough to do that. I want you to look at then one area of your heart that is not the whole, and I want you to ask yourself, am I passionate about the things of God in such a way that I am actively funding them, giving? Am I being generous? Now, you can do that in a million different ways, but here's probably what it isn't. When you throw 62 cents in the red bucket at Christmas, and you're like, yeah, I'm loving Jesus like a big dog right now. I just gave my change to the Salvation Army. No, the Salvation Army's great. Bucket's great. I throw money in there all the time. I'm talking about, are you intentionally wanting the kingdom of God to advance in such a way that you are giving towards it? Are you doing that? Yes or no? You're the only one who's gonna know that. If you're not, I would look at your heart because what it comes down to is a trust issue. You're not trusting that God will provide. That's ultimately what it comes down to, and I know people don't like to hear that, but that's just the reality. So, do you trust him? You can because he's good. Do you trust him? I pray that you do as we respond today. Pastors and prayer team, just help you think through, process through this, process through whatever. If you wanna pray about anything, we believe that prayer unlocks the power of God. We have communion in the back of the rooms because I believe that our generosity should be spurred by the generosity of Jesus who gave it all for us. He gave his whole life for us. So the bread and the cup in the back, they represent that to remind us how much Jesus has already given. So I, all of your generosity should flow from that. So I recommend taking communion as I do every week. It's a great reminder of who he is. But today, through the word, let's respond 
to what God put in there for us to hear. Let's listen to the word and let's respond. And so, Father, I pray we do just that, that you would allow us to examine our hearts, our hearts for you, and I pray that our hearts would be full of joy for you, that we would be a generous people, Lord, pursuing the kingdom purposes that you've placed in front of us. May we do that for your glory, for the advancement of your gospel, and for the hope of this world, because that is you, Jesus. We love you and we thank you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Let's stand. Let's respond to him.